in a way, it's like a reparation question. Using land to give people back a sense of place and uh, a sense of identity, like that they're connected to place. So, Ayushi, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. You know, when we started this season out, mm-hmm. one of the things we said we were going to do is we were just going to try to discover what's going on out yeah. there in the world with different actors. Yeah. You know, and so part of discovery is like doing research and finding out what's going on, being rigorous about making sure you've really covered every basis. Sometimes part of it is just like sitting still and see what comes. Mm. And I was at the Just City conference. Mm-hmm at uh, Harvard Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting down next to this person and she gets introduced and she talks about what she's doing Mm -hmm. in New York City Mm -hmm. with you know as a place that holds land and public trust Mm -hmm. and how they're using that to actually build community Wow! and I turned to Deborah Martin and said uh would you like to be on our podcast series? <laughs> uh, I didn't even know her. You know, it's just kind of like, okay, here's someone who's actually declaring yeah. in this conference that they're doing something that we're really interested in from a totally different perspective. So I invited her on the show. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I'm just messing. I'm so excited to talk to her. I mean, even from the initial conversation I had with her, it's incredible to watch kind of just her brain and her wheels like spin as to how, yeah, we can use parkland or land just to bring people together. So here we have Deborah Martin. Deborah, it's so great to have you here. And, you know, the the funny thing about it is we just we just met. Was it two weeks ago? Yeah. Two weeks ago, we were at a Just Cities conference at Harvard, sitting next to each other and then as we go around and hear what people are talking about, what they're doing, I just leaned over and said, I think we should talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I felt like that about everyone who was there. I'm still thinking about that conference. It was so interesting and, and unusual, really. I'm, I'm trying to think about what we could do with all that good energy. Yeah. It was an interesting set of people who were brought together by Tony Griffith. And, oh, uh, yeah around her Just City initiative. That's uh, awesome. Really just talking about how well those ideals re- resonated with people and if folks would be interested in doing some something around it. So I think something will come out of it, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean, I felt like for me, the biggest takeaway was the idea that, and this is relevant to our conversation today, sometimes what you need to do is not do what you could do. Mm. Can you say more about yeah, that? Yeah, tell us more that. about that's, that. That's, that's really... You know, I was just reading somewhere that today, 40% of the nation's wealth sits in 1% of our population. And I read that in an article about about young people who have grown up in great wealth and they're questioning the idea that somehow they earned it or deserve it. And something that came up at the Just City Assembly was this idea that sometimes what people who are are living with privilege need to do is to not take what they could take as a result of their privilege. Hmm. That's what I mean by not doing. And I actually think that that kind of abstinence or selflessness, for lack of a better way to describe it, is an immensely hard but likely necessary 
step that we have to take in our like development as a nation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really right on. Oof. Really well said. Well said. Uh, the idea of self-regulation. I think it's so interesting that you used abstinence as the way of thinking about it. But like, yeah, self-regulation or self-checks, I feel like it's such a foreign concept. It's like, well, if I can, why wouldn't I? Right? Like, isn't that? (laughs) What's wrong? What's wrong? I don't get it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of capitalism is that uh, you would maximize your, let's say, material or other kinds of wealth to the extent that you possibly could. Right. 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 And I feel like this is a lot about, I mean, this is this seems to be, I feel like we're talking in parallel to the history of the New York Restoration Project as well, right? A lot of the sort of idea of, you know, self-regulation and how you could be a better part of creating a sense of civic place is such a big part of the story for you guys. It is, actually, yeah. I want to hear more about that. <laughs> yeah, like, how did you start and where did it come from? So the organization started... When Bette Midler moved back to New York from L.A. and she was driving around town, this was the early 90s, and she was horrified at the condition of a lot of our open spaces, you know, on the sides of highways, but parks, community gardens, the the whole lot. And she started NYRP initially to have a group of people come together to pick up trash. That's how the organization started in 1995 when when we were founded. Over time, what's evolved is this kind of understanding that while we both manage and own land, we, we manage land that we own and we manage land that's owned by the city of New York and build on land that's owned by many different private entities and, and city agencies. What we've done is, is kind of shifted from an, an approach that looks at like, what's the negative thing that we NYRP need to fix to a more asset-based approach where we're thinking, what's the thing that we can build on in the communities that we're in so that we can help mm. people or, or, or sort of set the table for communities to, in a sense, self-govern and take back uh, land that they themselves can use, both for recreation and growing vegetables, but also as a, as a locus for collective action. So just for our listeners here, and actually for us, really, I'm curious, can you tell me a little bit about like the kinds of things that you do? What's the repertoire of your work? We manage, we have a little less than 100 acres under our management at all times. And that is 80 acres of parkland that we manage through a license with the city of New York. It's in northern Manhattan in the Inwood neighborhood. So that's like um, along the Harlem River, all the way at the north tip of Manhattan. For many, many years, New York City has been evolving towards a a kind of a public-private partnership model when it comes to parkland. And that means that there's a conservancy or some other private entity associated with public land and that private entity raises funds to care for and maintain that public land and that works really well when you're in communities that have resources it doesn't work so well in communities that are under-resourced so we have been working to kind of develop a different model and and you know i want to say with some success and and some struggles because the the communities that we're in don't have the same kind of resources. So that public-private partnership model doesn't really apply exactly to those spaces. So it's 80 acres of parkland, but then we also own and manage 52 community gardens across New York City. And those we own outright. So they're concentrated in northern Manhattan, South Bronx, 
and central Brooklyn, and they overlap almost exactly with New York City's lowest median income neighborhoods. And then the other big programs that we've been a part of was, uh, one was the Million Trees Program, and we partnered with the New York City Parks Department to plant a million trees. We were responsible for a quarter of those million trees. And that wow. we established that and planted the last tree in 2015. And then we have an ongoing program, which is really our, our focus for the future, two programs. One is called Gardens for the City. That's an application program where community groups, uh, schools, NYCHA residents, New York City Housing Authority, uh, folks who have an open space but they don't have the resources to, to build it into something usable will apply to us. And then we'll seek funding. And once funded, we'll build that space. And usually that's sort of an urban ag kind of thing, but it can also be like play areas for children. It can be uh, just a sitting area, quiet sitting area. So we've built some almost 300 of those over the years, over the past like eight years, mostly on New York City Housing Authority property and also schoolyards, but a lot of faith-based institutions, community centers, senior centers. And then finally, the last thing is we've been working for years now with the South Bronx community to implement a plan for a new connected network of open spaces called the Haven Project. And the Haven Project's first, very first uh, phase and very first project of the first phase is partially funded. It's a pier park on the east side of Port Morris. And that's a long-term, probably 20 25-year project. So that that's the work. That's the footprint in a nutshell. Wow. So you know, as I'm listening to you, I mean, first of all, congratulations. Yeah. All I mean, that's an amazing <laughs> amount of things uh, that you've done. Yeah, I mean, I'm not doing it alone, I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> but what strikes me in this conversation, you know, as you know, this, this season, we're really kind of looking at folks and organizations that people don't normally think of as holding civic space. And I'm realizing, listening to you, that actually there's a physical aspect of holding civic space that you're actually doing, creating these parks and other spaces that exist in the city. And I guess a question for me, like, if you weren't there to do that, right, if Beth Mittler hadn't been mad at the trash <laughs> and then started to create an organization that could develop and do this, who would have created those spaces before? What would have happened? What do you think? I'm just trying to understand, like, yeah, yeah. Who, who's in the space to actually pay attention to something that's so vital mm-hmm. to our sense of connection to the places we're in and maybe the people that we live with? I think there's multiple answers to that question. At the outset, it's always the community itself who usually starts to use spaces like there's a vacant lot and people don't really know, you know, necessarily who owns it and they start using that land. And that, you know, I'm talking about community gardens more than than parks. I think that's usually who's in that space. And New York City has like something like 700 community gardens in total. I think it's the most of any city in the nation. Many of them are on parkland. And then there are other smaller, we're the largest private landholder of that kind of public open space in the city. But there are other land trusts like the Brooklyn Queens Land Trust and the Bronx Manhattan Land Trust that are kind of like umbrellas that hold, let's say, 20 or 50 uh, community gardens like we do. The difference in our model is that there's the top-down model and the bottom-up model. The top-down model is like government says, like, here, you community, here's a garden, you take it, and we're going to regulate what happens here. The bottom-up model is 
here, you community, there's a vacant lot. We don't really have much to provide for you in the way of modeling governance or technical support or anything, but like, you know, have at it. And there are problems with both of those models. So what I have observed over the years that I've been with NYRP and worked with really extraordinary communities and incredible community engagement professionals is that it's really helpful when you have an organization that functions as a kind of facilitator to provide support as a kind of safety net or a a backstop to build strength in communities. And that once the, the governance of those spaces is up and running, they can carry forward on their own and, and then the organization can deploy its resources elsewhere. But it happens sometimes when you're dealing with community that, you know, people die or something happens or there's an expense, like an extraordinary expense, like a sinkhole opens up or whatever, weird things happen. Particularly when you're talking about under-resourced communities, it's really helpful to have an umbrella organization like NYRP that has some resources on the outside to, to be a partner. And so ultimately, that's the point that we're trying to get our spaces to, that the governance group in the garden is so strong that we really consider that group our partner. It's not like that group of people is using NYRP space, but rather it's our partner who's caring for this space in the community, and, and it's their space in that community, and we'll come, we'll step in if we're needed, but it, it's really not Uh, for us to determine what happens in that space because we don't live there and we don't care for it. This idea of stepping back is so incredible because I feel like, you know, we started off talking about this idea of self-regulation and knowing, you know, what to take and when not to, or when to act and when not to act. And I feel like it's so rare for organizations to want to make themselves archaic, even though that's often what, especially direct service nonprofits or governments or other organizations that work on social services try to do. So I would love to hear more about this idea of, you know, wanting the governance to be sustained by the community themselves. Like, can you give us maybe a particular story or a particular garden where this played out and how it played out? Sure. So when we first acquired our gardens in 2000, the idea was that why should Uh, uh, under-resourced communities not have the same kind of beautiful landscape architecture and experience of nature that that other more better-resourced communities have. So our board pulled together and, and, um, you know, famous landscape architects were hired to, to do designs to renovate our spaces, and they were done. We had one garden that was in a community that at that time still had a kind of problems with violence, and it was in a community where people didn't feel quite safe. And this garden's a narrow space from the front to the back, and the design was made in such a way that there was kind of a windy path, and you couldn't see from the front to the back. And consequently, the back became a place where illicit activities happened, and even someone overdosed. Oh, wow. And, and mothers with children, it was supposed to be a children's garden, and mothers with children would never go there because there was fear of like what they would find in the back. So fast forward to the present. The first thing that we implemented about eight years ago was uh, we don't do any renovation without going out to the community and saying to people, uh, we have like a very um, well-established now three-meeting process where the first meeting we'll reach out to people and we'll say, what are you, what's your dreams for how you want to live? What would you do in this space? You know, if you could do anything here, what, what would you do? And we draw that net widely so it's like, neighbors, faith-based institutions, public housing residents, schools, 
whoever is around. So typically those meetings, they can have like 30, 40, 50 folks show up for the first meeting and tell us how they, what they want. Then we'll come back, show people models, a second meeting and the third meeting say, okay, we heard you. This is what we're building. So that process achieves two things. One is it tells us what people want and it's not always same thing. I mean, sometimes, a lot of times people want places to grow fruit, fruit and vegetables, but sometimes there's like a senior center nearby and people just want a quiet sitting area or there's many daycare centers and they actually really need play equipment. We, we don't know. We don't live there and, and we need to know. And then the other thing that it accomplishes is, is because we're not New York City and we're kind of fast and nimble and we, we make things happen quickly, from the first meeting to the time that we actually build, complete the renovation, usually is no more than a year and a half to two years. So in that, in that time horizon, people who have, who have given their time and their thoughts to this process can see their input reflected in the built work. So I, I really think speed is actually like a really important thing. <laughs> yeah. People, you know, especially in under-resourced communities, I think a lot of times people are, and we talked about this at the Just City Assembly, I think a lot of times people are suffer, suffering from planning fatigue because so many times, you know, the municipality has come to say to them like, oh, what do you want? And people share their dreams and people become cynical that just why doesn't anything ever happen? So the fact that we own the land and that we can move quickly is, I think, huge. And the result is that then when we're ready to build the gar- what we call the garden group, there are already folks who are saying like, yeah, you know, I said we needed this and now I see you built it. So we had that experience recently in a garden that we renovated in Morsenia, which is in the central Bronx it's a rel- mostly low income, but working class people live there and it's a good neighborhood. And there's, you know, people are just trying to make their way in the world. A lot of recent immigrants and we had a quite large space, about 11,000 square feet in that neighborhood that we just didn't have the resources to renovate. And what happened there is what happens, unfortunately, in open spaces that are that don't have the kind of management that we help and provide with is that there were like a few men who kind of took over. And I say men just because part of what happened there was that people felt intimidated and consequently these three or four people treated the garden like it was a private space. So when we began the renovation process, there's a school across the street that has a thousand elementary school students, a thousand. And they have no green outdoor space at all, zero. They have an outdoor play yard that's like an asphalt yard that's very, very hot. And it's just, you know, like not not what you want for children. How long was that? I'm I'm, I'm just trying to get a time frame. Like, had this been going on for a year, two years, 10 years? Before the garden was renovated? Yeah. So So that was years Years and so people had just gotten accustomed to it, and wow, people just got accustomed to it so much so that when I went to the principal across the street, and even though there was a sign on the gate and the garden was open part you know part of the time every week in season, when I went to the principal of the school across the street and told him, you know, um, we ha- now have resources and we're going to renovate this space, he he said. What do you mean? I thought that was Willie's property. <laughs> and I said, no, actually, New York Restoration it. So he was like stunned by that. But we became, the school became our best partner. And the science teachers actually helped us design the garden. 
And that now led to them using the half of the garden, which is considered like the part of the garden that's the children's garden. They use it for science classes. And there are the core of our garden group. They have like at NYRP, we don't wow. open and close our gardens. It's the garden group who holds the key holders who open and close the garden. And the schools at that particular garden is our, our one of our strongest partners. So, okay. I'm going to slow you down because <laughs> there's a whole lot of what you just said. Like, okay, what happened to Willie? And oh. <laughs> what did Willie have to say? Oh. You know? <laughs> and like, I can imagine, you know, these five guys hanging around, this is our space, and all of a sudden, hey, I want to let a thousand kids in here. They're right. like, yeah, no, right. No, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to Willie? <laughs> Willie, notwithstanding the fact that people were a little freaked out about coming into that garden, Willie was in his way. He was he loved that garden. And yeah. he was caring for it in his way. Even though we had like rabbits and chickens and dogs and there were just like it was a whole menagerie there. <laughs> He was, he loved it. So when we began this process, our extraordinary community engagement team, led by a woman named Anel Cabrera Maris, who really brought our community engagement to another level. But what we did was all at every step of the way, we said to Willie, Willie, we're renovating this site. We want you to be part of the garden group. The garden's going to be closed for this amount of time while we do the renovation. But when it reopens, we want you back. And we want your help. And he is there. He's still there now. He's now part of a group that shares the governance of the space. And it's a healthier relationship to that land for for the whole community. You know, I think one of the things that's really beautiful about this, and again, when we were first starting out the series for this time, we were talking about, you know, new actors in the civic space. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes people don't think about you could raise the question, well, why are people who are dealing with community gardens considered part of that? I think with your stories illustrating is something that we don't often see and the public doesn't often get to do, which is to imagine something, to work with someone, to bring it into being, and then to have the responsibility for actually moving it forward and caring for it and taking care of. So much of our life right now, you know, our kind of to the extent that the public is involved in anything, they have to, you know, they have to cede control to someone else eventually. It's about giving up authority, you know, and maybe these are one of the few spaces where actually the public can actually see itself, you know, not giving up authority, but actually being given authority to right. take care of something. Yeah. That's the idea. Like we ultimately encourage our garden groups to to we give them like a boilerplate example of what bylaws look like. And we encourage them to build their own bylaws, to have their own governing board and subcommittees, so that in some ways we're, we're giving them the tools, but it's they themselves who do it. And we even have like a, a rating system called the uh, uh, corn, beans, and squash. <laughs> and, uh, and if you're corn, we've now, it's almost like our, our community engagement has evolved and it's got three parts. It's the outreach related to design. It's the corn, beans, and squash in the middle. And then if you become a corn, we've now just recently implemented a kind of micro-grant program so that if you're at the level where you're actually launching your own public programs and you want to borrow our projector to have a film night and you need some money to rent the film and like buy popcorn or whatever, we'll facilitate that. So it's really all about the capacity building, you have to 
come up with the program, you have to show us that you're keeping open hours and that you're democratic and who comes in and becomes part of the group and how you allocate the beds. But if you do all those things, it's kind of like an extraordinary opportunity for civic engagement. I'm I'm stunned. My head is spinning. I just want to reflect back to you what I feel like I'm hearing, which is... So on the one hand, right, we started off talking about this landscape architects, the fancy ones coming in, trying to make this park this pretty thing, and that completely failing. And then you gave the, and you've kind of walked us through the alternative model that you've now used in terms of including people in the community in this renovation process and allowing them to govern themselves and allowing them to sustain themselves and scale with all these bylaws and ratings. And basically... What I'm hearing is, A, more money doesn't solve the problem. (laughs) It seems like the actual focus is around governance. And you've basically turned parks into a way of allowing people to govern themselves and learn how to come to the table and engage each other despite all kinds of maybe demographic and other sorts of differences. And then on top of that, you've now turned all these sort of self-governing park spaces into this massive network. And so you're kind of just low-key creating this, like, I don't know, like this infrastructure for people to be able to learn democracy all across the what you described as, like, the lowest income or maybe demographically most marginalized parts of Manhattan, the Bronx, and Brooklyn. I mean, that's insane. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but this is insane. Like, <laughs> is anybody else catching this? Like, this is... <laughs> I really appreciate your description of it. And that's our dream, right, is that we have that. <laughs> and we have achieved that in some of our spaces. Wow. It, it's, um, you know, when you say money didn't solve the problem, it really depends on what problem you're trying to solve because I don't want to pretend like we don't need money, right? But right. the problem we're trying to solve, like if the problem you're trying to solve is taking a place that's filled with trash and, and turning it into a pretty garden, all you need is money. Right. Money solves that problem. Right. If the problem we're trying to solve is using land, in a way, it's like a reparation question. Mm. Using land to give back people back a sense of place and uh, a sense of identity, like that they're connected to place, then money's not going to solve that problem. I actually love that concept, gardens wow. as reparations. You know, wow. looking at them from a framework of reparations, uh, it's really interesting. You know. What so I, sh- I don't no, want to cut you off, Caesar. I just I'm coming up with a really great pun. Oh, Instead no. of parks and recreation, parks and reparation. <laughs> <laughs> like, can I you imagine that. if we had a department of parks and reparation? Yeah. That is so funny. <laughs> I think we have a title for this segment. Yeah. <laughs> Something I've been talking to everyone about, and and Caesar might recall that I read this <laughs> at the Just City Assembly, but New York City just put out. To my knowledge, for the first time in the Department of Health put out a document saying redlining has resulted in really poor health, health and other outcomes in uh, uh, many communities and its lack of investment in the land. So, I mean, I think that, you know, every day there's more data coming out saying that people need connection to nature and open spaces. And that's true for health. But what people also need is social infrastructure, like places to develop connections with one another Mm. and community gardens, like solve both of those problems. Wow. So ultimately our goal would be, right. Like you say, like low key, we don't talk about it this way because it would sound like too 
like bluster, but like that, that all of our gardens would be connected and people would have a kind of a land basis for, for collective action. And we do have things now where we bring together people regionally and even citywide uh, on an annual basis. I think this is one of the most really important notions, this idea of a land basis for collective action, mm-hmm. because I've seen in the Boston area lots of community gardens, and I know there are groups of them and stuff, but I don't know anyone who thinks about them that way, that there's something that's actually helping people to start to stitch this together Right. And the notion of, you know, a land basis for people to actually move forward is really important in this country because we have this American dream about home ownership Mm. and that everybody has to own a home Mm. and so on and so forth. And so I think it gives people a false notion of how much land the public actually controls and owns. And it's very small. It's it's in some sense. I, I remember like 20 years ago, I was looking at some studies that our land ownership of private ownership to government or other institutions' ownership was worse than lots of countries in South America that we were fighting wars around this issue. Wow. Because we have a lot of people that hold a lot of land, but there's a lot of land here. And there are a lot of big people, governments and others who own that land and control that land. So there is a sense of needing to kind of ground ourselves around land as being an important part of actually rebuilding kind of our democracy in this country, right? There's, there's a really important part of it. The other thing, so I just want to, I want to test this a little bit. So I think about, you know, the neighborhood gardens that are going up, and I think about them in Boston, and I think about how Boston's constructed, and I can say, okay, I can see how this could kind of work, you know? And there are people who live in an area, and they're actually you know, some of them are coming together to participate and it feels more open so others come in. But I also recognize that, like, yeah, but we tend to live in somewhat little segregated areas. And, yeah, maybe there's some differences, but the people who are more different, we kind of, you know, stay a little bit outside of that. And I'm just wondering if you have some instances where, like, well, actually, no, we've actually used this and it's actually brought some pretty disparate people together who've learned how to do some governing together. Yes. I mean, we see that every day in our spaces. The story that happened last summer that I've been telling everyone, because it was just such an extraordinary moment. We have a garden. It's in Bedford-Stuyvesant, close to, to Williamsburg. And there have been long, many years, the, the Bed-Stuy side of the garden is mostly like African-American, West Indian families. But on the other side, on the Williamsburg side, there's a lot of Hasidic families. And those two in New York and, and elsewhere, I would guess, those groups have had tension historically, but not in this garden. In this garden, there are families who garden and to grow food because they're, they all, the thing they all want, everyone wants to grow nice organic produce in the summer to share with their families. Like everyone wants that. That's just something that we all can agree on. So I have seen families in that garden, like Hasidic families alongside with West Indian families, like sharing uh, tips about how to grow things. It's like an amazing site. And last summer, it was the 10th anniversary of when this garden had been renovated. And the group decided that they wanted to throw a party to celebrate that. And for whatever reason, they decided that they were going to invite a belly dancer to be. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm wait, sorry, wait, what? Wait the West Indians and the, and the Hispanic Jewish Society belly dancers were the appropriate. <laughs> 
Okay, so this belly dancer oh my was, God. I want to say she was the most covered belly dancer I've ever seen, but she <laughs> was a belly dancer. And um and, and the belly dancer came, right? And everyone stayed at like till like it was too dark and she was belly dancing and people were leaning out of windows or looking in the garden. And it was this moment where you had this kind of faith in, you know, like New York. <laughs> I'm a, I, I was born in Brooklyn and I'm a New Yorker, but it's like, you have, so I believe this, but I think, you know, you think like, you know, this could work. It could work. Like, <laughs> find ways that we could, we could connect. And that's not the only place I've seen. I mean, I love that belly dancer because that was just like blew my mind. But, you know, we, the other garden I talked about earlier, the one in, in Morrisania in the Bronx, that also is a neighborhood. It was mostly Dominican American for many, many years. And now there's a huge influx in that neighborhood of Syrian families uh, and, and from other uh, like basically war torn countries where a lot of the children have struggled with trauma. Mm-hmm. And all of those families, both kinds of families have come into the garden and joined the garden group there. So, you know, like they have to work together or they're, if they don't all collaborate on the governance of this space, it won't be able to draw the kind of resources that we could help provide over time. And, and it takes a while before people kind of trust you mm. as a partner. But once they do, then there's this sort of understanding that like um, we're, we're not there to write our story. Like we're there for them to write their story. You know, it's uh, that last beautiful. point you made up. Yeah, really beautiful. It's also connected to something that we've talked a lot about, which is so much of our kind of political process and our community processes are filled with a lot of trauma for people. People come to them holding a lot of trauma. And that in order for people to engage with each other in really healthy ways, we need to actually create opportunities for healing and think about that in relationship to how we bring them together. And there's no more probably no more appropriate place to do that than in the process of actually bringing people together to make the land rich, to grow food from it, because that in and of itself is a, is a process of renewal and of healing itself. And also, I just want to say, you know, thank you for this work that you're doing, because we... Really? I would, I, yeah, I just thank want to go you. back to this point of, like, the land as a basis for thinking about governance. Amazing. And really having the being able to create opportunities for the public to engage each other that way. And this idea of, you know, sensibly starting to network these gardens together is such a powerful concept. And it is a new space for kind of building the civic muscle of of the public, you know, the democratic muscle of the public. Absolutely. And another kind of infrastructure. Yeah. The land portion of that equation is particularly important, I think, in communities of need where in better resource communities, there are like institutions that people connect with through their their financial resources in, right. in under-resourced communities. Like there, are, there isn't a place. Like where do you go, actually, to meet your neighbors and talk to people? But I also think that land is often, I mean, maybe this is just my perspective and maybe this isn't shared as widely as I as I think it is but I feel like land is a form of extraction for a variety of people that don't have money like it's not just that you know there isn't a space to heal or that isn't being utilized with space capacity but it's actually it has a very blatantly negative association 
You know, like at least I say it that way because I think like being a homeowner is like you were saying earlier, is such a rare. I mean, it's, it's an American myth. It's not even a dream anymore. It's an American myth. Right. And for all of the people, the majority of the people in this world that don't have home ownership, that are renters on the land, the land is is a source of stress for them. It's how am I going to pay my rent? Right. It's how am I going to continue to live here? It's do I have to move now? Am I being evicted? Do I even have the funds to pay my electricity? You know, like. It, the amount of stress that I think land causes and for you and your organization to all of a sudden turn land into a form of healing and self-governance and ownership, like this reclaiming and reparation is just truly phenomenal. Yeah. You know, if you don't have a, a sense of connection to the earth and to land, however small and humble it might be, it's really hard to be fully human, I think. Mm. Mm. And, um, you know, we, we, we have kids come onto our spaces. They've never touched soil. They've never seen a worm. They don't know how things grow. We even in the park that we manage, it's literally a block from a big public housing development. And we often get kids who don't know that the river is behind the buildings there. So I think a sense of place is critical to each and every person's identity. Yes. Thank so you true. so much. Deborah, this has been great. Oh. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Sure, sure. I'm honored to be on your show. Thank you for asking me. Ooh, how'd you feel about that, Caesar? I, I loved it. You know, right. I. It's funny for me because you know when I first came to the Boston mm-hmm. area, one of the person person I met was this woman named Charlotte Kahn. Okay. She worked at the Boston Foundation, but she mm. is considered the kind of person who really started community garden in Boston oh, wow. and really growing it throughout wow. different neighborhoods. Mm. And she kind of leveraged that work to do all kinds of community building work. Uh-huh. But what was different is uh, than what Deborah's doing is it wasn't that that intentional piece. Mm. Like I'm going to actually figure out how to use this mm. resource that we have to actually start to connect this kind of complex public that we have. But if we do these series of kinds of things with folks that are connected to the ground and Mm. to the earth, Mm. then when they need to deal with some traumatic experiences, they'll be in a better place to do it. Yeah. I mean, she's building community resilience. Yeah. That's, it's, it's wild to me how you can turn something as seemingly simple as a community garden or a park or just renovation, just the process of renovation yeah. from a headache. Because, I mean, I've seen my parents' place go through some renovation. <laughs> that was a headache. I was eating out of a microwave for like months. You know, and to turn something that could easily be a headache or a source of conflict and struggle into a form of resilience. Yes. And not only resilience, but even a form of reparations. Mm. And that was incredible to me to hear her talk about you know i mean the example of the of the park in harlem and thinking about how she was able to use that space to bring people together that may not otherwise be able to have that conversation and thinking about just even the history of land ownership and thinking about how land ownership has been you know what we talked about with lindsay smalling from social capital markets land has been probably the biggest source of the racial wealth divide Yes. Because in this country, wealth is based on land and property ownership. Exactly. And NYRP is using something that can be so easily divisive and traumatizing or uh, sort of the opposite of equity creating to create 
this resilience and create this reparations model. And I, I'm just, I'm blown away by the work that I heard about today. Yeah, it's, it's just fascinating. With each, you know, with each guest we have in here, we're, we are discovering, you know, the different ways, different private actors yeah. are actually really strengthening democracy on these small scales. Yeah. But these small scales are where people live and it needs to happen there. Needs just happen. as it needs to happen in much larger scales. Yeah. So this is great. This is incredible. Yeah. Thank you all for listening and joining us. We're a production of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT with support from MIT's Office of Open Learning. Our sound is produced by Dave Lashansky. Our content by Julia Cubrera and Misael Galdemez. I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell. And you can find us online at themove.mit.edu. And on our Medium site at medium.com forward slash themovemit, as well as our Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much. Goodbye.